experience today. I'd like you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word. We're going to continue to study in 1 Timothy. We're going verse by verse through it. If you've been with us, you know that. If you're a guest here with us, we welcome you. We're glad that you're here. We hope it's a time that you can worship the Lord, that you can be in His Word, you can learn from it, and just very, very simple things the church has done since the first century. It's our desire to do that here. As you're turning to 1 Timothy 1, I'm reminded, and over the last couple of weeks, I've been reminding you, of course, to be in the Word each day. It's one of the uh, it's one of the uh, very, very important parts of, of your life as a believer, and as we start this new semester and everybody's so busy, uh, things are going to pick up. It's my encouragement to you to be in the Word, and one of the things I want to, last time we were in Matthew, I, I reminded you of Mary and Martha and how uh, Mary had chosen the right thing, and that wouldn't be taken away from her, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to Him teach, and I want to remind you, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It's a passage we studied at length and we went through our verse by verse through Romans, but it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, mark it by the renewing of your minds, so that you may prove what is the, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, you know how you renew your mind, right? You renew your mind by spending time in the Word each day. That's what changes your thought patterns, it changes your understanding of how the world works, your response to it, the Holy Spirit sanctifies you and makes you more like Christ through the Word. And so if you want to know what His will is, that which is good and that was acceptable and perfect, and everybody wants to know what the revealed will of God will be for tomorrow or for next week, what I'm supposed to do about that, and of course the Lord is going to make that clear to you. But the main thing is that we do what He says in His revealed will. One of those things is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Don't be stamped in the world's image, but be stamped in the image of the Word of God. So we're going to be stamped in the image of the Word of God today by turning in first to 1 first Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11. We're going to pick up there, and we're going to go through verse 17. That's our new section that we're going to start looking at this morning. Verse 11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, verse 13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Verse 16, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Carlsbad Caverns National Park is, is a series of 119 caves in Carlsbad, New Mexico. It allows for self-guided and guided tours. It's famous, you may remember, for the bats that fly out of it every evening between 200 and 400,000 in the summer and over a million in the wintertime. I've been fortunate to visit there several times. When you take the guided tour, one of the options is a lights-out timer, unless it used to be. Approximately 750 feet below the surface of the, of the earth, the ranger will bring everybody to a stop and then just for a few minutes, switch off all the lights. And the darkness is complete. If you've not been in a place like that, it's kind of hard to describe to you that there are no shadows. You don't see anything out of the corner of your eye. You can put your hand directly in front of your face and you will not see it. There is no light at all. 
And it's an amazing experience, and usually during that time, uh, some children will get upset, and some adults, because you're thinking in your, in your heart, I hope the electric comes back on, because it'd be pretty hard to get out of this cave if we don't have any electric. But the kids normally will start crying, and, and I remember one time I was down there, and I remember the parent wisely saying, don't worry, somebody here knows how to turn the lights back on. And I would just say to you, in this passage that we're looking at, that's what Paul's going to do today. He has been dealing with false teachers in the church. We've worked our way through uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to verse 11. And he's been dealing with what's going on, and he had to deal with the way they were using the Bible and kind of picking and choosing what they wanted to teach. And, and they're picking and choosing out of the Old Testament law and just kind of messing the whole thing up. And Paul sets them straight and says, you know, the law is is uh, lawful to teach if you do it correctly, but um, it's made for the unrighteous, not for the righteous person. And then he goes through a whole list of sins that the law addresses. And he makes it really clear that what's going on there is the fact that he is teaching it correctly. What's going on in the church is they're just kind of picking and choosing from the Old Testament. This will help your life. This is going to make you more spiritual. This will give you secret knowledge. These are the same things that go on today, kind of picking and choosing in, in the Word of God what you want to teach and just kind of throwing in what you would like to throw in there. Paul says all that has to stop, all that uh, freelancing it, all that doing whatever you want with the Bible has to stop, and particularly the way that you use the law. Then he explains that's how the law is used lawfully, and then he says this in verse 11. He says, according to, this is a very important passage, he says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In other words, he corrects the misuse of the law from verse 8, where he said the law is good if one uses it lawfully, and he, mis- he corrects it by how, by, from what the false teachers are doing, which is using it incorrectly. Because when we read that passage, we saw the law of God was given for two reasons. The first reason it was given was to condemn everyone. And the second reason was to set up a holy standard of what God expects. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, it's a passage we didn't get a chance to look at last week, but I want to look at it this week. Because I think it makes very clear, and, and, and sometimes even New Testament saints are a little unsure about why the law was there and what we were supposed to do with it. And particularly if we've been trained in any type of evangelism that doesn't include, doesn't include exposing sin, which is, is very easy if you go to a church that doesn't talk about it, Paul says, he answers the question in verse 19, he, has, he says, why the law then? I mean, it's still, it, was still, it was the question back in the first century, it's sometimes the question now. It was added, he said, because of transgressions. In other words, men were wicked and disobeying the law, but it was kind of unfair to God for us to guess that, right? I mean, like false religions around the world, I think maybe I've offended the gods I worship, but I'm not sure what I did. Well, here, the Lord makes clear what his word says. In verse 21, it says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Because the law condemns sinfulness, because it it shows us transgression. Is it contrary to God wanting to bless us? And Paul says, may it never be. No, absolutely not. It plays an integral part. He says, for if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. In other words, if he gave you the law that you could keep, then you could just count it as your own righteousness that got you to salvation. But he says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were, mark this, kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, mark this, our tutor 
to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So, why do we have the law? Well, because of the sinfulness of people. And the law, in God's goodness, makes the infraction clear. And that's kind of important. The law then is being used correctly in that way. And the statement, everyone is shut up, as in a prison, or in other words, in custody, everyone is at the same starting point. Wicked, that's what Romans 3.23 says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death. So everybody's at the same starting point. The law makes it clear what the requirement is, and everybody falls short of it. So we're shut up, we're in custody as in a jail, if you will, and the law tutors everyone so that they can recognize what? The promise which was become by faith. Once you get to the point where you realize you're lost, at that point, you can be born again. And Paul makes it really clear as he uses himself as an example in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. He says, for while we were in the flesh, that's before redemption, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. What's that mean? Well, that just means the normal actions of unredeemed people are the fruit that have as their value and their punishment death. That's the normal way people act in an unredeemed state. They do the works of the world and they are captured and held for punishment. That's the law used correctly to make clear how we're really living in our unredeemed state. Now, in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he asks another question. Does that make the law bad? What shall we say then, he says? Is the law sin? No, may it never be. Of course the law is not sin. On the contrary, I would not, mark it, have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet, but sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment produced in me, coveting of every kind. So the law switched on the light so the gospel could be seen. There's no way you can come to the gospel unless you recognize that you're in a sinful state, and the law makes that clear. So in that respect, from the Lord, His holy standard, it's a good thing. It's not sin, and it's not contrary to His blessing. So when the law is made clear, sin then is seen as it really is, because we saw last time the law is the first part of the gospel. The law comes and says you're a sinner, and you need to know that, and then the second part of the gospel is there is a Savior. And that's what Paul meant in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, as he corrects the way the law is being used, which is unlawfully, kind of picking and choosing like a lot of preachers do today, just picking and choosing what they want to say, then they throw in all their own stuff there, and then people miss the important parts. Paul says, listen, this is the way the law is supposed to be used. And then he gives the outcome of the correct teaching, which is everyone is condemned, and that is in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he says the use of the law is part of the gospel. Paul doesn't want them to lose confidence in the word of God when he refutes this false way of using the law. That's what happens a lot when you have passages, and we looked at this last time, when you have passages that talk about money or talk about the holy work of the Holy Spirit or something like that, and then it's been taught wrong for so long, and then you come along and you teach it correctly, and people are inclined to say, well, he teaches it this way, and he teaches it this way. Maybe they both are right. They both sincerely believe it, right? So that just has to be, the, maybe it's just either one. 
So we know it can't be that. We get rid of, we get rid of heresy, right? Because we just say nothing's heresy. But that's not how it is, right? I mean, there is a correct way to teach it, but the problem is when you get ready and you teach it correctly, then you have to apologize for all the other false teaching that comes before, and it's easy for the church to say, okay, well, there just must not be any way for us to understand it, or it must be okay either way, and both of those are wrong. So Paul wants to avoid that. So he just says, listen, that's not the way you teach the law. This is the way you teach the law, and this is why you teach the law this way. So what's the gospel? Well, the first half is man's a sinner, and a sinner so bad that he can't redeem himself and that's using the law lawfully. That's right doctrine for everyone. See, When you come and you witness and you make clear their position before a holy God, then that makes the good news sound like the good news. Because most of the time when you witness to someone, most people have a pretty good opinion of themselves and think they're pretty decent people overall and that the way they interact with the world is on the whole going to tip the balance to the good side. But when you start talking about the law and you talk about the requirements of the law by a holy God, that changes the whole dynamic of the conversation. And they may not like it very much, they might not want to talk to you anymore, but, and you don't say it in a haughty manner, you, are, you identify with them because you used to be there too, and such were some of us too, and that's where we were. And part of your testimony, beloved, and sometimes the reason why testimonies aren't powerful and people don't come to faith is because we, ex- we exclude that part. We just talk about how the Lord has blessed us on, th- on this end. But what we missed out is, is how we understood we were condemned and why we had to call on the Lord in the first place. And part of your testimony then is you work that out, and everyone should be able to do that, is to put all that in place. How did I understand I was lost? And what did the law say about that? And what kind of person was I? And then I understood that God has provided a way of escape through Jesus, and that's the good news. And so it's important that we deliver it correctly. Man's a sinner, and a sinner so bad he can't redeem himself. That's the law used lawfully. And then comes the second part, and we looked at this in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I deliver to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we have sinned and fallen short of a glorious God who had made us and we turned away from from His law. So, Jesus came to pay for our sins, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because otherwise, we'd have to pay for them in hell forever. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the good news. Christ went to to death for us and raised. Death had no victory over him. That's the second part. The remedy for the dire prediction our predicament, rather, that everyone who's ever lived finds themselves, the good news, first of all, is bad news. Man's a sinner. You're lost without Christ, with unforgiven sin, for which you'll be damned forever in eternal hell. So you can see Paul's problem. The Holy Spirit's carrying him along here to address this problem. When somebody comes along and obscures that message, see, we don't want to say that because that's offensive. We don't want to talk about sin, right? When you turn away from sound doctrine, verse 6 says, you turn towards useless words. Why are they useless? Because they are not informing the conscience correctly. They're not producing sincere believers because you don't understand what salvation is to begin with. So it's impossible for you to have those things. False teachers will say, we don't want to talk about that. That's depressing for people to hear. They might not say that out loud, but you'll never hear it in the course of the sermon. See, We don't want to use that language. We don't want to say the word sin or homosexual or adulterer because people won't come and they won't feel good. See, and we don't want to talk about repentance because, and, and brokenness because that's offensive. 
See, that's the intentionality we talked about a couple weeks ago of manipulating the Word of God to say what you want to say. All those things Paul, in the early part of 1 Timothy, has forbidden and told Timothy to command them to stop freelancing with the Word of God. You don't get to do whatever you want to do. But the faithful teacher has to talk about that because Paul says it's in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And beloved, if, if you have people who come and think they have a better message than the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which includes the law, then they have a really serious problem in understanding the real problem of sin in the world and their real job and the stewardship that they have that they're going to be judged for. And then Paul springs off of that explanation into one of the most, and this is the passage we're going to look at today, the most wonderful expressions of the power of the gospel found in the New Testament. And the thought of such a gospel having been committed to him as one so unworthy of it is just overwhelming to him. And beloved, this is where then the light comes on. So as you look at the passage and you're thinking, and as I was this week, and as I shared with Will, we were talking about this. I struggled with, so where, how does this fit into this narrative? So we're going first 11 verses, and we're condemning false teachers. We're saying what not to teach, uh, how to use the law, and all of a sudden, boom, we got Paul's testimony here. And Paul just, and I, I think it's the fact that he just launches into an outpouring of gratitude stemming from a personal history before meeting Christ. And it, there's a reason he's going to do this, because Paul at that time was called Saul, and Paul hunted down Christians. And Paul wanted to devastate the church. And he was a brutal, merciless, bloody man. And Paul's biographer, Dr. Luke, described him as a religious predator. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul prayed on those, it says, who belonged to the way. What's the way? Well, those are followers of Jesus who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the followers of Jesus became known as those who were followers of the way. And his goal was nothing short of the complete extermination of the way. And then in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Luke writes about Paul. He says, so then, Paul says about himself, and Luke records this, I thought to myself, that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So that's a religious predator. So he threatened and he slaughtered, and that was on Paul's mind all the time. He was a callous, pious, self-righteous, bigoted murderer committing to the full-scale destruction of the way. And he wasn't content just to be in Jerusalem. As we just read, he sought out and he received extradition papers from the Sanhedrin so he could go to Damascus and ravage the Christian community there as well. Now, that journey from Jerusalem to Damascus is about 135 miles. So it's about a week's walk. And that, of course, is the rest of the story and one that we've studied before. In Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed about him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up 
and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. So Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. I was thinking about this earlier this week. Paul really is the poster guy for a road rage commercial, right? You better not have a little Christian fish on your bumper or he's going to run you off the road. And in that same light, he met Jesus at the Damascus off-ramp. And a whole other thing happened then. And the Prince of Peace made it clear that all of his rage was actually against the God of all creation and his living word, Jesus. Paul thought he was serving God and doing what he was doing. And the Lord made it clear, not only are you not serving God, you're actually persecuting the very one you think you love. And that must have been overwhelming to Paul. To hear that and to come out of there blinded and to go and have to sit and listen to the very people he came to destroy must have been so overwhelming and humbling to him. He never got over it. He never got over it. He repented of his sin. He was miraculously saved. And so when we get to verse 12, as we come out of verse 11, you know, Paul understands why the law was important. In Romans 7, he told us that you know, he thought he was following the law, but then when he really understood what it was for, not for his own righteousness, but to expose the fact that he couldn't keep the law, he realized that he was sinning all over the place, and he had to have a Savior. It's the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. It's the very law which, according to Romans 7, showed his sin to be utterly sinful. I was once alive, he said in verse 9 of Romans 7, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive. And what? I died. He thought he was alive. He thought he was vibrantly serving the God of all creation. In fact, he was the opposite. And he was shown to be a wicked sinner. And all of this came as Paul is sitting, no doubt, in Damascus on Straight Street, and he's thinking about all of his life, and he's thinking about exactly what he understood and what he didn't understand, and it was very overwhelming. And Paul leaves then this instruction for Timothy and the condemnation of the way the word's being used for a moment, and all of that, and how they messed up the entire gospel, but still in the middle of this testimony, he drives this point home by using himself as an example of the proper understanding and teaching of the gospel. And by default, he shows, in contrast to false teachers, he presents himself as a true teacher. And this is very important. In contrast to the powerlessness of a false gospel, he presents the power of a true gospel. And in contrast to the proud, self-righteous men who think they can attain secret knowledge and spirituality and are all about the, you know, the rock star personality and everybody's got to look at me and I've got to be somebody, see, Paul presents himself as a humble, defiled, base sinner who knows nothing except Christ and Him crucified in weakness and fear. And when he realized his sin, mark it, by the proper use of the law, he realized he has to fall on the grace and the mercy of God. He doesn't have any righteousness of my own, right? That's what he said. I have no righteousness of my own. Everything I knew, I threw on the dung heap. It was a filthy and, and worth nothing. So in contrast to those who, if followed, would just lead people away from the saving plan of God and into empty talk and unsound doctrine and shipwrecked faith and corruption and lies and envy and strife and arguments and evil and blaspheming and ungodliness that damns men forever, Paul, if followed, will lead men into the wonderful gospel of God, which if believed will lead men, it says in verse 16, who would believe in him to eternal life. So there's a lot at stake here. 
And so this is Paul's testimony to the grace of God. It's a testimony that Timothy needs to pass on to the people in the church. So they can see the power of the true gospel on the condemnation of the law and the good news of Jesus as over and against all this impotent teaching going on now and still going on in churches all around the world. And you know, as, as we get to the passage today, Paul is so thrilled that God saved him and that he repented and his testimony over and over again, he repeated this constantly through the New Testament. You probably remember this as you looked at it. We looked at a few today just to give you an example, but Paul repeated this testimony in Acts 9 and in Acts 22 and in Acts 26 and again in Galatians chapter 2 and then in Philippians chapter 3 and then Timothy chapter 1. And, and there's some other partials all the way through the New Testament where he talks about how unworthy he is or how he was a sinner and, and all these kinds of things. You see kind of snapshots of his testimony. So Paul never got over this. Now look at verses 12 and 13, which we're going to look at today. And I'll just tell you, we won't get far through the passage, but we'll get far, I think, in our understanding of the importance of a clear presentation of the gospel and how to use the, the scriptures correctly. But we're going to point out as we work our way through what the gospel has the power to produce. And I think that really is Paul's point here, if it's anything, is to show what the gospel produces. The true gospel will produce a certain outcome, and we'll look at some of those things. And Paul's life uh, is that example, and of course, what it produces in the life of every believer, because Paul's not unique in that respect. So look at verse 12. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the very first part of that passage, I think, expresses the overwhelming emotion for Paul at this point, and certainly as we look at Paul's heart, and certainly for us, and it's thankfulness. The first thing the true gospel is going to produce when it produces a new life is an overwhelming gratefulness. It's because... It was always to him, for Paul, it was always a marvelous, amazing reality that Jesus Christ really saved him. And that's not a bad thing for us to realize, too. There was always a certain sense of almost disbelief in the midst of his unwavering faith that that could even happen to him considering his history. And so he would celebrate the grace of God since he saw himself as a supreme example of that grace. That God gave him the salvation. And he's so thankful, and, and he's thankful for a lot of things. And as we'll see as we go through, but he's most thankful, I think, for what we see in verse 15. We're going to look at this more later. I'll just show it to you because I love it so much. Paul says this in verse 15. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. That's one of the most wonderful passages encapsulated uh, the reason Christ came and, and, and the outcome in all of the New Testament, I think. And it's probably one that you're familiar with. And one that models for us not only Christ's ministry on our behalf, but also our ministry as we model Christ, right? So if Christ came to, into the world to save sinners amongst whom Paul says I'm chief, that also is our job, is it not? It's the main job we have. The Great Commission is the main job we have. It follows up, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And then we have this Great Commission passage, which requires us to go and do just like Jesus did. God has the ability to transform lives. It generates this desire then when trans, the life is transformed to give thanks. And, and stories of the power of the grace of God to transform life for, uh, to, uh, I think, all of us. Very fascinating. If you, if you read missionary stories, which I like to read missionary books, and you read these incredible passages about the missionaries presenting the gospel and, and people being miraculously saved from all kinds of things, it's just so, it's so amazing. 
And in my own ministry, I've been given the opportunity uh, to hear the testimonies of people who Christ has saved as I waited to baptize them, as they stand in the baptismal water, and they give their testimony out. And I've just been so overwhelmed as how, you know, when you truly come to faith, there's no secrets anymore. You don't care about that old life because it was shameful. And so you just say, I, I once was this kind of man. I was once this kind of woman. I did these kinds of things, and the Lord saved me from it. I've just been overwhelmed by those testimonies. And, and, and secondhand, I, you know, reading about testimonies and hearing them from people as they come to faith, it's just so overwhelming. And the first thing you just do is just thanks. You know, as you work your way through the Word of God on a daily basis, and you get to these things the Lord has done for you, sometimes you just want to put the Bible down and just, Lord, thank you. I, I, how did this even happen? I don't even, I didn't deserve this. I prove it every day that I didn't deserve this, and yet you're so gracious. Thank you that all I have, as we looked at just a minute ago, all we have, I hope, is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness. I, I don't have any righteousness I'm wrapped in His righteousness, see? I've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And all I did is repentant faith. All the work was done by Jesus. And He transformed me. And my first response is Paul's thankfulness, right? And, and here's the thing. God doesn't just wonderfully save extremely wicked people. He transforms moralists and self-righteous people and Pharisaic, zealous, respectable, legalistic sinners too. And that's just as amazing, isn't it? You know, people like Paul, who thought his whole life he was living for the Lord and doing what the Lord wanted. A Pharisaic, legalistic, zealous, self-righteous guy who persecuted the church, and the Lord transformed him. And what about Peter and Nicodemus, who came at night and didn't even understand the basics of salvation. And he didn't care that the Lord said, you're a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these very basic things. He didn't care. Why? Because he, he was so grateful just to receive the good news. He didn't care if he didn't understand. And the first thing was just thankfulness that he got to come. And, and I remember reading about Billy Sunday, one of America's great evangelists in the earliest 20th century. And, and of course, if he were here today, you probably wouldn't like his teaching. He was a man of, came out of the world and he always said he just liked to talk to the common man. So there was no high errors or anything with Billy Sunday. He just kind of said, he taught the word and said what came to his mind and, and people responded. But Billy, you may not know this, but Billy and his older brother spent their childhood in the Civil War soldiers orphan home because they lost their parents in the Civil War. And when Billy was 20, he was playing baseball in a local league in Marshalltown, Iowa, and a professional player discovered him, and Billy eventually signed a contract with a team known in 1883 as the Chicago White Stockings, and he played with them for seven seasons. He played for a number of other teams as well, but one afternoon after a game, Billy and the other ballplayers were heading to a tavern, and when they had drank their fill and returned outside, they sat on the curb to listen to a Christian song service coming from across the street at the Pacific Garden Mission. And while Billy and his friends were mocking the songs and mocking the message, a worker at the church heard them mocking and came over to speak to them. Now, think about that, okay? If we were there and we heard them mocking and jeering and they're drunk, probably what we would do is say, eh, probably don't have to go over there, right? Eh, they're going to hell anyway. Walked out of the Pacific Garden Mission, walked across the street, and invited them all to come inside, of which all of them except Billy laughed. So he shrugged off his teammates, and he went in there, and he heard the gospel, and he repented, and he believed, and he was redeemed. And throughout all of his life, he was just so thankful to, thankful to the Lord for saving him. He was noted as saying, quote, 
The law told me how crooked I was, and then grace came along and straightened me out. Quote, the backslider likes the preaching that wouldn't hit the side of a house, while the real disciple is delighted when truth brings him to his knees. Or my favorite, you've probably heard this one, it's very popular. He, was, he preached against sin so much, made it clear what sin was and what the Lord had redeemed him from and what the Lord would redeem them from. He said, quote, listen, I'm so grateful for the Lord saving me from my sin that I'll kick at it as long as I have a foot, I'll fight it as long as I have a fist, I'll butt it as long as I have a head, and I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth, and when I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory, and it goes home to perdition, end quote. That's the kind of guy he was. He never lost his thankfulness. He never lost his gratefulness. And when you open the Word of God, it doesn't take you long to read the Bible accounts of the transforming grace of God. In Mark chapter 5, verse 15, there's a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. Remember him in the Gerardines? Nobody could control him. Nobody could, could bind him. And nobody went over there because he would give them a, he'd hand them their hat. Give them a whooping. Anybody who went out there. And so everybody's afraid of him. Jesus lands there. He is miraculously delivered by, from those demons because Jesus cast them in swine, remember, and they all ran down into the sea and they all drowned, and then everybody in the town comes up and says, that's our whole living. I mean, they just get drowned. Could you please go away? But when they come there, I, I love this, and, and Mark has this, has this rendition. He says, um, they see the man whom they're afraid of who had legion of demons. He's sitting there clothed and in his right man, the very man who had legion, and they became frightened, and the man's so grateful. When Jesus gets ready to get in the boat and go back over, he wants to go with Jesus and just begin to spread the gospel. He's so grateful being delivered. And Jesus tells him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. That wasn't hard, was it? Because he knows where he came from. And verse 20 says, and he went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. And that's not hard to be amazed when you see that transformation occur, right? He's so thankful for his salvation. And how about the man born blind? Right, and Jesus delivers him, and then the Sanhedrin comes, and they talk to him, and like, you know, who, who made you, you know, this man's a sinner he, who, who transformed your eyes. He goes, well, that's, that's a big secret, because, uh, you know, nobody's ever been born blind, and then somebody gave him their eyesight, so obviously he's not a sinner, and they're like, get out of here, you don't know anything. And, but he was so grateful to Jesus for his salvation, right? And how about the leper who returned to say thanks, and, and the woman at the well, and, and the sinner who was in the synagogue, and he beat on his breast while the moralist said, I'm sure glad I'm not like this dude. And Jesus said, only one person went out of there justified. Who was it? It's the one who was humble and said, I don't deserve this. And Zacchaeus, when he was redeemed, gave away the thing he loved the most. Four times what he'd taken from anybody. He was so grateful that, he, that the Lord had delivered him from his vice and his sin. That, and this is great. It's not said anywhere else, but Jesus said this. That day salvation has come to this house why? Because of the thankfulness and the gratefulness and the obvious nature of the transformation that occurred. And, and what about the centurion who understood it was the Son of God on the cross? And the thief who was hanging on the cross with Jesus, who never went to Sunday school and never got baptized, but was with the Lord in paradise. And, and the Jews at Jerusalem when Peter preached, and Cornelius who wanted to know the Lord so badly, he sent for Peter to come and please explain the way to me. And the Ethiopian eunuch, who was miraculously saved by the preaching of Philip and sent the gospel to Africa 600 years before Mohammed. And, and how about um, in Acts 8.39, it says he went on his way, what does it say, rejoicing, of course. Why? Because he's so grateful for what the Lord has done. Because the thankfulness and joy and gratefulness, that's part and parcel of redemption, beloved, isn't it? 
And sometimes sin can, can dull that rejoicing. Remember what David prayed after his huge infraction? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sometimes that gets lost in, in, in the dirty of the world and you're not in the Word and you're not in church and, and you, you lose that thankfulness of what you've been redeemed from and then that motivation to go and do some things about it, right? And so it's important. And how about the people of Ephesus? Remember, under the preaching in the gospel, of the gospel, took out all their occult books and all their magical books and what did they do with them? They threw them in a big pile and they set them on fire and they were worth tens of thousands of dollars, each of them. Why? Because they were just so grateful they were delivered from the darkness and they just did that as just an act of service and thankfulness to the Lord, see? And it was so amazing that most of the city came to Jesus because he transformed so many people. And, and I think we can certainly understand that thankfulness of the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, and if you've been converted, you, maybe this was a good reminder of, of the first response of thanksgiving at being redeemed. I understand that because of my own conversion and the forgiveness and the grace that was granted to me. That salvation is poured out to me daily. It's a good reminder to be thankful. The first response is thankfulness. We don't lose that. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm included in that number. And for that, I'm very grateful. So we can understand Paul saying, I thank Christ Jesus, when he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I thank Jesus for that. That's, is that not so in your life? And then the next thing we can see that the gospel has the power to produce, and, and we're just going to go just word by word through here. Verse 12 says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has, here's the next one, strengthened me. Enabling, empowering are the words there that are synonyms to that. Because Jesus has not only given you salvation, but he's also enabled you to have the strength to live it out. It wouldn't be enough just to be saved without the ability to live it out because we'd never have any victory, would we? It'd be impossible for us in our own selves without the power of the Holy Spirit to have any victory if he didn't strengthen us. There's some enabling grace, and without that we'd be lost again. Not only do we experience the grace of salvation, but the enabling grace to walk in that salvation and continue in the faith. He who has began a good work in you will be, what is it, beloved? Faithful to complete it. See, he's at work, and it's his strength and enabling that make that happen. And that's part of, when you give the correct gospel out, part of the transformation is going to include this. But if you're not teaching word by word through the Word of God, then you're not going to understand that this is part and parcel, and you just get to pick and choose whatever you want from Jesus. That's a problem, right? Because Jesus has some specifics that he wants you to understand. And part of the power of the transformation of the gospel is a thankfulness that comes from being redeemed, and secondly, a strength. And we see this important statement about the power of the gospel in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Again, the thankfulness at the end is just overwhelming. But listen, that seems so far away from modern churches anymore, doesn't it? It's like diametrically opposed to what's being taught. You are crucified with Christ, and you don't live anymore. It's not your own personal whatever you want to do. Christ lives through you, and he strengthens you to live in that way. And that's so important to understand that. And at the end of the letter, to say, in 2 Timothy 4.17, I love this, this statement by Paul, and at this point, he's either in jail the second time, and it'll be the last time before the Lord um, takes him home, 
or he's getting ready to be, and he says, but the Lord stood with me, and mark this, strengthened me, it's always the Lord's strength, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. What, what, the Lord strengthened me that I could do the job he gave me to do, and proclaim the gospel in all the places he gave me to proclaim. And that's how he lived his whole life. There was no imagination that it was him accomplishing anything for eternity. All that happened as a result of the gospel power to perform and, and transform. And listen to this example in Colossae, in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him, he says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, here it says, striving according to his power. He's empowered to do this work because the Lord has given him the strength to do it. How about this? Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ too. What's the last part? What can you do? Whatever it is the Lord has for you, and you do it not in your own power, but Him who strengthens me. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His. Ephesians 6.10. And what did He say after that? And He's going to equip you with armor so that you can do the job he wants you to do. But it's always him, see. The true gospel will present that in a clear light. That'll be part of the transforming power of the gospel. And thirdly, you'll see connected to the second, the gospel that has the power to produce this. Verse 12, it says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he, here it is, considered me faithful. And again, this is uh, trustworthiness or faithfulness. This is... Um, how the word is used. Now, here's the thing. Did the Lord look around and say, you know, here's a pretty faithful guy. I think I'm going to bring him into the kingdom because he's got a lot of stuff to offer. Here's a girl who does what she says she does, and I'm going to save her because I need that attribute. No, not at all. Paul is amazed, and we are too. Jesus counted Paul faithful or trustworthy to carry the kingdom work that he's been given. But of course, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What's the next one? Bingo. So when you come to faith, you're transformed by the power of the true gospel. One of the things that happens is, is you become faithful, see, these are the fruits of the Spirit, beloved. Did you know when you come to faith that you're supposed to start bearing these? You won't hear that if you don't teach through the Word of God. But this is what faithfulness looks like. It's not some unique believer who has these things. That's as every believer is supposed to bear this fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit, right? All Jesus, all accomplished through the power of the gospel. Apart from the Lord, we won't be faithful. But faithfulness to ministry, faithfulness to the kingdom, faithfulness inside work in the church, inside sharing your faith, trustworthiness, walking by the Spirit. Listen, these are marks of redemption. The true gospel is going to give you these things. This is what the transformation looks like. If you're delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, beloved, there's going to be a difference in your life. And one of those things is trustworthiness. And another thing is you're empowered, you're strengthened to do things. And overall, you're thankful for all that has happened.
Apart from the Lord, we won't be faithful. But with the Lord, if you're truly saved, you're going to be faithful because it's part of the fruit of the Spirit. The gospel that's delivered, that's undiluted and not dumbed down with the foolishness of speech, when it's delivered correctly and believed, it produces faithfulness and it makes the Holy Spirit visible and known and Paul is one committed to faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found, here it is, trustworthy. So if you're leading the church, faithfulness has to be part of your life. And it's true for every believer. 1 Peter 4.10, remember this? As each one has received a special gift. When you come to faith, you received a spiritual gift that enabled you to serve the church in some way. That's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 4 where it says, the church grows into maturity by what every joint provides. That's the idea. You have been empowered to do work in the church, to meet a need for others in the church. That's why you're here. And Peter says, you've received a special gift. Here it is. Employ it in, what is it? Serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If you're going to be faithful, what are you going to do? You're going to be plugged in and using your spiritual gift. And that makes the Holy Spirit obvious and it makes your redemption look true. Paul's instructing the church, 1 Corinthians 7.25. We went over this at that time and the different ways Paul presents things. And I love this. And it's kind of disjointed, but I'll make, I'll make it make sense for you. So here in this section in, in 1 Corinthians 7, he deals with marriage, he deals with divorce, he deals with singleness. When it says virgin, that's someone who's never uh, been married. But it's irrelevant to our point. The last part of the passage is what I want to point out. So he's giving all this advice and all these things, and sometimes he says, the Lord says this, sometimes he says, I say this. So if he says the Lord says this, that means you can go back somewhere, other place in the Bible, you can find where the Lord said it. If Paul says, I said that, then that's direct revelation from the Lord. And here he says... Now concerning virgins, uh, virgins, I have no command from the Lord, so nothing's been written already that I need to pass on to you. But I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is, what's the last word? And here's the thing, as you come to faith and then this spiritual gift begins to be manifested in your life, and you use it faithfully, over time you become more effective for the kingdom. And that makes sense, doesn't it? As you exercise these spiritual gifts, you become more aware of what the Lord wants you to do. You're plugged in and doing things. And then what, here's what happens. See, in your faithfulness, um, you get some more opportunities for kingdom life. And I've said this to my sons over the years as they've been growing up, and they're not perfect, and you know them, so you know they're not perfect. But sometimes they'll come to me and say, hey, this person, they unloaded uh, this thing on me, Dad. I mean, they told me all about their life, and, and like, they're asking me what to do. Or they, they want to meet with me and, and, and be accountable and like have a discipleship relationship. What do I do? And I'll just say this. You know what? The Lord's counted you worthy to have that part of the kingdom play in their life. You're going to get to give them the gospel and you're going to get to give them biblical advice. You know how you can do that? When you begin to exercise your spiritual gifts and you understand what the, the fruit of the Spirit is and you start using it faithfully, then the Lord expands that ministry for you because you've shown yourself useful to the kingdom. And lots of people sit, and they don't come, or they're not faithful, and they're not useful to the kingdom. And, and if you're real about it, you think about, am I being used for the kingdom at all? I mean, in the way that the Lord would want me to, commensurate with the years I've been born again? And the answer might be shocking to you. But listen, the more that you're involved and poured into the Word of God, the more you understand what the power of the gospel produces in you, the more effective for the kingdom you will be over the long haul, commensurate with the time that you've known the Lord and how much time you spend in the Word. And this is just normal stuff, beloved. This is how people grow. This is how your ministry grows. This is how you'll get more opportunity to minister to people when you're faithful in those little things. But the gospel produces this, and this is Paul's point. 
And the only reason that we're trustworthy or faithful with the stewardship of the gospel and the stewardship of divine truth and the stewardship of ministry is because the Lord gives us that trustworthiness. And the more we're good stewards and the more, use, the more useful we'll be, and even then it's all him. He's the one that gives the opportunities. He's the one that gives you the understanding. He's the one that's going to produce the fruit, right? I mean, everybody has different productions of uh, fruit. Didn't we see that in Romans? Remember, we went through all of that. Uh, depending on, you know, you've been given a certain gift, and then depending on your faithfulness, the Lord brings people in, and you have this production, see? And so, and then finally for today, because we're out of time, the gospel has the power to reduce this last thing. We'll look at it. Last part of verse 12, look there. And it flo- this flows right into the next one, and, and we've already alluded to it, and I don't mean to, to double up on it, but if it says it, it says it, we're going to look at it. it. It says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful. Here it is, putting me into service. And so the true gospel presented correctly is going to give you a purpose or a usefulness for your life. One of the joys of sharing your faith with people whose life is just a mess is that you hope that when you give the gospel and they come to faith, not only will they be redeemed forever and they'll have a home in heaven, but their life will take on a new purpose. Like it was oriented around the world and everything that the world offers. And it's, all, it's all empty and it just produces nothing. And, and you see this in some of these, uh, some of these really well-known pop stars recently who, who all of a sudden like, wow, what, where did that come from? Well, where it came from was, is you can have all the money in the world, and you can have all the, all the sex, and all the, all the material things, and all the fame, and everything else, and guess what? It's still just as empty as the guy who lives down the street from you who doesn't have a job, okay? It's just as empty. You don't have any purpose. You don't know why you were made. You don't understand why the Lord has formed a new, well, wants to form a new person in you. You were made to love God and enjoy Him forever, and you're not doing it. But when the gospel, correct gospel is presented, you have a purpose, and guess what? It's not all about living for you. And it's not about amassing all kinds of stuff, right? And being happy, you know, and all the time. The Lord is going to conform you to his image. He's going to use whatever it needs. He needs to do that. And what a joy that is to to know that. A purpose and a usefulness. And I think it's important to point out as we close, all these verbs, strengthened, considered, putting, you know, all that, they're all an aorist. You know what that means? Aorist, if you looked at it before, that just means at a point in the past they started. The, uh, the uh, strengthening and the putting into service and, and all of those kinds of things. They, po- they start at a point in the past. When was that? At salvation. That's right. When you came to faith, that's when they started to work, see? And Paul, Paul's talking about that time when he came to faith. All this stuff went into, into started to work. A point in the past. And service, he says, Putting me into service, that's the Greek noun, diakonia. It's, it's one that we've looked at before. It's where we get our word deacon. It actually means table waiter. You've been put into service. Guess what kind of service? The most humble, base service to one another. Your purpose for life. You're given faithfulness for a purpose. And that purpose, part of that is the Great Commission. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. That's everybody at one point, right? Yet he's now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to, mark it, present you before him, here it is, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That work was done by Christ on the cross. You get the benefit of that. That's the power of the gospel. See, you have to know that you're a sinner in order to reach out for salvation. 
If indeed, he says, you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Why? Because people respond for all kinds of reasons. But the true gospel is going to produce some things in your life. And we said the fruit of the Spirit could be visible in your life, which just confirms the change which occurred. You're going to do these kinds of things. Which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, was made a minister. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. Did Paul understand what his purpose in life was? He did. It's not hard to figure it out. The Bible's all full of it. It tells you precisely why you were made and exactly what you're supposed to give your life to. Paul says he may be a minister, he made me a servant, he put me in this lowly, humble service, and beloved Jesus did the same for you and for me. And you can tell by that term that Paul is not bragging about his position, about his wonderful trustworthiness, or about his great faithfulness. None of that he knows is his own. He's not seeking honor for himself. You have a purpose. And, and I'm going to close with this. Some of you may know or remember this uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. I've said it before, and, and it's something I really, really enjoy. And when my boys were really little, I would, I would question and answer them, pepper them. And one of the questions is this. What is the chief end of man? What's the answer? Do you, anybody know? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's just so great, isn't it? What's your chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were made for that. Psalm chapter 100, verse 2 and through 5 is really the corresponding verse that deals with these kinds of things. And, and I love this. Listen to it. It says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Why? Know that the Lord Himself is God. It's He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise and give thanks to Him and bless His name for the Lord is good and His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. It's just so great, isn't it? I mean, you know, you were made, your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And you know what it means to glorify God? Well, people say that a lot. I want to do this ministry, and um, we've had plenty of experiences like that. Don't worry about it. Um, enjoy this ministry. Uh, I'm going to do this for God's glory. Well, that's great. The only way, though, that God's going to get glory is how? That by the ministry that you do, His attributes become clear. You see? So when you live your life to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, you're only going to glorify Him to the extent that His attributes look clear through you, you see? And so that's your chief end. And that glorifying God, He's made clear what you want, He wants you to do. And when you do that kind of thing, you make Him look powerful. You look, the Holy Spirit looks like it's at work in your life. And so these are kinds of things that are just very, very basic for Christianity, right? And, and it makes sense to me that Paul's like putting it on pause. So what you're preaching, he says, is not going to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. But if you give the gospel correctly, and it includes the bad news and good news, then it's going to change the output. The output's going to change. So you can tell that in Ephesus, they weren't having a lot of the stuff that's going on. And so this is a very, very important point. And so it's just using himself as an example of the power of the correctly presented gospel. So Paul's not exalting himself here. He's just showing the importance of getting it right. And this is incredible thankfulness for the redemption and permeates the whole rest of our existence. And coupled with enabling and faithfulness and trustworthiness for purpose and for usefulness. And so Paul's just so overwhelmed that God, through Jesus, has chosen him. He never got over it. But it makes a very important illustration as we get partway through our passage. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would.
Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to just be part of what you have planned and what you want to do. And Lord, we thank you for the faithfulness of people and all those who serve downstairs today and, and those who are in nurseries and doing the kinds of things that um, bring you glory and discipling people and, and the faithfulness that you've given as a spiritual gift being put to use so that the church can be enriched and blessed. And Father, there's just so much here that is just so um, useful for us, Father. But most of all, I just think uh, perhaps that our thankfulness can be reignited maybe. That you'll help us make a commitment to be back in your word again, to be back in fellowship, to be plugged in so that that thankfulness is just so overwhelming that you've chosen to use us and that you do. And Father, I pray we'll be in your word each day so we'll have something to say and we'll know how to answer each one. So these are very simple, Lord, and but things that are very ple well-pleasing to you, and we like to be those kinds of people. So we pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for sake, and all God's people said, Amen.